This morning we're going to be talking through a passage that is found in Mark chapter 8. Um, if you were here last week, we got to hear from Carrie Buckner. Um, if you weren't here, um, it was a great sermon. We are very fortunate. Pastor Shaq and I are not the only two people in our community who teach. We also have three women in our community who teach, Amanda Wagner, Julia, Allen, and then Carrie as well, really gifted communicators. This morning, we're picking up where Carrie left off and going to be working through a passage in Mark chapter 8. But before we get to that, have you ever had a moment in your life where you look back on it now and recognize that the question you were asked or the way that you answered a question was a life-defining conversation? where you can look back on it and recognize that that conversation, that question, your answer to a question, it became this conversation and this moment that changed the trajectory of your life. For some of us, it could have been the question, is this the college you want to go to? It could be the question, do you want this job? It could be a question about where we live. Do you want this apartment? Do you want to live in this neighborhood? Could be the conversation of, do you want to move to another city, look for another job? For me, one of those questions that changed my life was when I looked at Julia and said, will you marry me? It's this moment where you're faced with a question and the answer to it changes the course and trajectory of your life. Over the years, um, I've had the honor of being in ministry for about 14 years now. I've had the privilege of walking about 100 couples through their season of engagement up to their wedding day. And it is without question one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. And while I, I don't know that Julia and I realized this when I asked her to marry me about 15 years ago, it's something that I've come to realize in the years since as I have walked with so many couples through their engagement and then their wedding that this question and this decision to get married, it changes everything. And I'm convinced that we don't actually know what we are saying yes to when we ask the question and respond to it. I'm convinced in hindsight that when I and here's just the quick story. You didn't ask for it, but I'm going to tell it to you. Um, Julie and I had been dating for a while. We um, had been talking about getting engaged. I had had the money that I had wanted to save to purchase a ring. I went and bought the ring because I thought, why hold on to the money? I could just go buy the ring right now. I'll just hold on to the ring. I'm not planning on asking Julia to marry me for four or five more months. I'll just let the ring sit in my dresser at home. And like every morning that I would get ready for work and open up the dresser and see that ring, it was like calling to me. Why are we waiting five more months when you have me already? Um, in all honesty, part of the reason I waited so long was because of Julia's mom. Um, she kept telling me that weddings aren't easy to plan and I needed to hurry up and ask. And my personality type is one where I'm like, don't tell me to do anything. 
even if it's marry your daughter, that's actually going to make me wait even longer. But one day I was at work. Um, I was working at, um, I was working in the corporate space at the time, and my boss was walking down the aisle where my cube was, and he just looked at me and said, when are you going to do this? Just when are are you going to do it? And I was like, I don't know, Reggie, like probably in December. And he looked at me in this moment. He was like, you're an idiot. She's amazing. And you're like just waiting for her to what? Discover like that she probably would be better off with someone else. Like go ask the question now. Um, And so I was like, okay, I will. It was just a Wednesday at like three o'clock. So I left work, went home, got dressed, changed, and drove up to Julia's apartment in Wexford. I was living in the Mexican War Streets. I just drove up to Julia's apartment, knocked on the front door to her apartment. She answered it, and I just got down on my knee and asked. It was like a super, now in hindsight, it's like a good story, and I love the fact that some of you reacted like, oh, that was spontaneous and romantic. But in hindsight, I, I look at some of the other engagements I see where people have been planning for months, and it's like on the West End overlook, and there's like a mariachi band and a photographer there, and I'm just like... But I'm convinced that in that moment when I asked Julia to marry me, I didn't really know what I was asking. And I'm convinced that when she said yes to me, she didn't really know what she was saying yes to. We had this idea of what it meant to be married. We'd seen, she'd seen her parents and I'd seen my parents. We'd seen what it was. But I think in that moment when we ask that question or say yes to that question, we're really only thinking about how much we want to spend the rest of our lives with that other person. And we're not necessarily thinking about all of the struggle. We're not necessarily thinking of all of the pain. We're not necessarily thinking about these moments where unexpected tragedy occurs. And the person that you're married to walks through that and a year later And this was true of Julia's and my marriage. Three years into it, her dad died very unexpectedly. About a year later, I had this moment of recognizing she's not the woman I married anymore. She's very different. We don't think of those things oftentimes when we are in this place where we have these questions asked to us, where we think we know what we're saying yes to, but we're not always sure. What about you? Have you ever had a moment or conversation that you look back on now and recognize that your decision to ask the question or your decision to say yes or no, that that was a life-defining moment? The story that we're going to walk through this morning is in Mark chapter 8. It starts in verse 27. Here's the story. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The story, like many of the stories that Mark tells in his gospel, it starts with a geographic note. And it's always important to pay attention to that geographic note because it creates context for us as we seek to understand what's really happening in these passages. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from village to village around Caesarea Philippi. It's a predominantly Gentile area. And this area around Caesarea Philippi is known in particular for its paganism. It's known throughout the region for its worship of false gods. In Caesarea Philippi, there is a large temple that's dedicated to the emperor where people would gather together and they would worship the spirit that they believed empowered each of the Roman emperors. Additionally, the region's known for the worship of the Greek god Pan, a half-man, half-goat creature who was the god of nature, the wild shepherds and flocks. More generally, Pan was associated with sexuality and fertility. Pan was not worshipped in metropolitan areas. He was worshipped in caves and grottos along country roads in rural places like the roads Jesus and his disciples are traveling along in this story. The worship of Pan, just to create context for where Jesus and his disciples are, to worship Pan was to get drunk, offer sacrifices, and participate in orgies. That's where Jesus and his disciples find themselves. These are the roads that they're walking. These are the people that they are meeting and interacting with, the people that they are teaching the gospel to, the people that they are seeking to perform miracles amongst. Jesus, it seems, isn't afraid of going places marked by paganism. He's not afraid of leading his disciples into places marked by godlessness or sinfulness. Jesus sees these things and he moves towards them, showing his disciples how to engage them with the hope of the gospel. And it's interesting to me that Mark tells us that it's on the way to these communities that Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say 
I am. It's on the way into communities marked by paganism and godlessness that Jesus decides to begin engaging his disciples in arguably the most important conversation he's going to ever have with them. Jesus engages his disciples in a life-defining conversation on the way. He doesn't pull them outside of their daily activity of living out their kingdom mission. He doesn't remove them from their daily lives into a self-contained, controlled, or sanitized environment. Just in the course of their regular day, in the course of their regular work, in the course of living out their regular ministry and calling, Jesus engages them in this deep conversation. He asked them, who do people say I am? And it's, in, it's Jesus simply asking the disciples to report back to him. What have you heard all of the other people say? What have you heard the crowds that you've been interacting with? What are they saying? Who do they think I am? And they replied to Jesus with the equivalent of what we might hear people say today. He's a good teacher. He's a moral leader. He's got wise things to say that we should listen to. But then Jesus turns the question away from the crowds and who other people say he is directly to the disciples. And Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's a life-defining question. And Jesus asks it on a dirt road in a rural community in the middle of nowhere. It seems like the type of question that you would want to bring a group of people into like the temple in Jerusalem. You'd want to make a show out of the question almost. Who do people say I am? Yes, that's it. But he does it in obscurity. He does it in the middle of their everyday lives. In my experience, we want to experience life-defining moments with Jesus in Bible study. Or maybe while we're on a mission trip, or maybe while we're sipping commonplace coffee, watching the sunrise and reading our Bible, or while we're in the middle of a powerful worship experience, or while we're on a retreat. Those feel like the moments for us to be encountered by Jesus and to have him ask us a life-defining question. We tend to think that these life-defining conversations need to happen in these spiritual spaces. But what if this story is an example of what it actually means to walk in step with Jesus? What if this story is an example of what it actually means for us to, and his disciples to walk in step with the Spirit, to just do life with Jesus? That it's while we're teaching our students, making that spreadsheet, building that slide deck, sitting in that meeting, selling those products, interacting with that customer, caring for our children, meeting with 
a parent creating something beautiful, restocking shelves, making a delivery, caring for our patients and managing our employees? What if it's in those regular everyday spaces that Jesus shapes and forms us into the disciples we're supposed to be? That it's as we're living out our kingdom mission, as teachers, nurses, cashiers, doctors, accountants, therapists, analysts, childcare workers, lawyers, small business owners, creatives, coders, social workers, recovery counselors, program managers, and so much more. What if it is in the midst of that work that Jesus can most effectively teach us his character and ways? Now, before we get to the disciples' answer to Jesus' question, I want to take a moment and try to make sense of why Jesus asked the question in the first place. I think it's this. The disciples knew they were on the way to the villages surrounding Caesarea Philippi. The disciples knew they were on the way to interacting with groups of people not dissimilar from other groups of people that they've interacted with countless times throughout the gospel up until this point, where they travel from town to town and village to village. And they meet people and they teach the Bible of their day. And then Jesus and even sometimes the disciples perform these powerful miracles as evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. The disciples think they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi, and that is true to a point. But what Jesus knows is that they're really on the way to Jerusalem. They're really on their way to Jesus' ultimate death. And this question apparently needs to be answered before Jesus knows whether or not the disciples are ready to walk with him on the way to Jerusalem. The disciples answer to this question, who do you say I am? It's a life-defining confession for them. Peter replies to Jesus' question, speaking seemingly on behalf of the disciples. He says, you are the Messiah. And it honestly seems like Peter has absolutely no idea what he's getting himself into when he says that. That none of the disciples have any idea what they're about to get themselves into by saying, we think you're the Messiah. Because it's this confession that then leads Jesus to tell the disciples things he's never told them before. That apparently they weren't ready to know where Jesus was ultimately headed, where they were ultimately on their way to, until they could say these words, we think you are the Messiah. And in verse 31, Mark tells us that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter's reaction to hearing this, it's this like astounding moment to me. 
Peter goes to Jesus, pulls Jesus aside, and rebukes him. And he looks at Jesus and says, we, we got to talk over here. I don't think you know what you're doing here, Jesus. What in the, this is a wrong way of understanding things, Jesus. And Jesus' response to Peter is to gather all of the crowds and all of the disciples, and once he has this big crowd assembled, to then very publicly rebuke Peter. In verse 33, we read, But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Can you imagine that moment? Peter just had the audacity to pull Jesus aside and rebuke Jesus. And now Jesus is like, hey, Satan. Jesus says, you do not have in mind the concerns of of God. You have in mind human concerns. Why would Peter rebuke Jesus? It's a bold thing to do. And it's not something that you just do on a whim. Why does Peter rebuke Jesus? And then why would Jesus so forcefully rebuke Peter? It seems that Peter and the disciples have an understanding of what they think it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. They have an idea in their minds of what the Messiah will do. It's an understanding that's been formed in their hearts and in their minds all throughout their lives. That ever since they were children, ever since they first started going to synagogue, they were taught about the Messiah. And so this moment where they say to Jesus, we think you're the Messiah, they're thinking of it the way that they've been taught to think about it. And to Peter and the disciples, the Messiah is not one who suffers. The Messiah isn't someone who is rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, but someone who comes and is embraced by them. And the Messiah certainly is not someone who must die. The Messiah is supposed to be the one who must reign over all of Israel. They associate the Messiah with power and influence, with royal triumph. They understand the Messiah to be the one who's going to overthrow Rome's imperial presence in Israel. They envision the Messiah as someone who will be more powerful than the emperor himself. So when Jesus begins to say that the Son of Man, the Messiah, needs to suffer, Peter legitimately thinks that Jesus has a wrong understanding of what it means to be the Messiah. Peter's offering a corrective to Jesus. But Jesus needs to clearly and forcefully establish right now In this moment, 
the kind of Messiah that he actually is and will be and what it means for the disciples. It's not a moment for Jesus to let their misunderstanding just fester for a while. This is a moment to make sure the disciples in the crowds have clarity. Jesus, we're told in Mark 8, verse 34, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Apparently, suffering, self-denial, and sacrifice are central to being a disciple. Suffering, self-denial, and sacrifice are central to being a disciple. This is how we can know that the prosperity gospel is false. The way of Jesus is not primarily marked by physical well-being and economic prosperity. The disciples seem to have been very comfortable with the idea that Jesus was the Messiah so long as it meant the first eight chapters of Mark. That they got to travel around to people and places. And yes, they met some opposition along the way. They had some hard interactions along the way. But at no point in time were their lives really in danger. At no point in time was Jesus literally saying to them, the way of following me is literally going to be sacrificing everything that you are and everything that you have. They're comfortable with the first eight chapters of Mark, where Jesus, through the Spirit, empowers them to cast out demons and to perform miracles and to preach with power that they never otherwise would have been able to. They're comfortable with the first eight chapters where they follow around this man who does things that nobody else has ever done before, where they're in a boat, where he calms a storm. They are comfortable with Jesus through the first half of Mark. But Jesus needs to make sure that his disciples are still going to be with him the second half of Mark. It's a question we need to be able to answer too. The way of Jesus is marked by provision. There is peace and grace. There is healing in Jesus. We can experience moments of communal triumph and victory, but the way of Jesus is also marked by suffering. It requires self-denial and sacrifice. The way of Jesus invites us to lay down our very lives with, for one another and to do it with joy and hope. When Jesus says that anyone who wants to be his disciple must take up their cross. And I've chosen this language in particularly. He's inviting his followers to pledge allegiance to him alone. To relinquish all of their resources. 
to relinquish all of their claims to influence or power or prosperity so that they might be wholly, completely, and exclusively identified as belonging to him. Who do you say I am? The disciples can only answer it one of two ways. This is an either-or question. He's either the Messiah or he isn't. And if the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then the only way they can respond is by giving up their lives and taking on Jesus' way of self-denial, sacrifice, and suffering. The only thing they can do if they really believe that he's the Messiah, is take up their cross and follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, to his, his crucifixion and death and resurrection. When I asked Julia to marry me and she said yes, We didn't know that 13 years later we'd be very different people. We didn't know that our lives would be what they are today. Fifteen years ago when I asked that question, will you marry me? I never would have considered that we'd be standing in this place together right now. There are moments in our lives where we're asked questions and we do the best we can to answer them with all the information we have available to us. I knew that I wanted to spend my life with Julia, so I asked. Julia, God bless her, decided that she wanted to spend her life with me too, and she said yes. We made that decision based on what we understood each other to be and marriage to be. And it's all turned out so different. It's not less wonderful, let me tell you that. It's not less wonderful, it's not less beautiful, it's not more, less amazing. It's incredible. The journey's been great. But we had no idea what we were getting into. Who do you say I am? Sometimes I think, we think, we only need to answer this question once in our lives. That we only have to answer Jesus' question on the day we choose to give our lives to him for the first time. But it's a question I think Jesus asks us every day. It's a question I think he asks us every morning. Who do you say I am? And we need to be honest. Is he our Messiah or not? Do we live like he's the son of God or a good teacher with some wise things to say? Every one of us is on the way somewhere. And 
To be clear, I don't mean that in some sort of like eternal way. I'm not saying we're all on the way to either heaven or hell. Like that's not this conversation. We're all on the way somewhere. And if we were to be honest and to evaluate our lives and the choices and the decisions and the ways that we think about Jesus, are we on the way to Jerusalem with Jesus or are we on the way somewhere else? Are we on the way with Jesus that's marked by joy and suffering? That's marked by provision and also moments of self-denial? Or are we on the way to comfort? Are we on the way to security? The most fundamental question we answer every day is the question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say I am? Our answer determines our direction. It shapes our witness to the world and our neighbors. It shapes the way we engage our families. It informs everything. And so what we're going to do right now is actually just create this moment for us to be quiet and still again. Brian, Mitch... Alex, Christian, if you guys would make your ways back up here. We've got a few prayer prompts that we're going to put on the screens over the next few minutes. And this is meant to be a time where we actually maybe begin answering the question, or at least wrestling with it a little bit, where we begin to work through who do we really believe Jesus is? And what are we really on the way to? So our team is going to play. You'll have those prayer prompts on the side screens. My sincere encouragement is to take this time to process and pray, to be still before God, to talk honestly and openly. And then at the end of this, we'll receive communion together.